Our second reading is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15. After this, Absalom, David's son, got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent to Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city in Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the book Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. The word of the Lord. What do you do when the world that you've been assuming was going to happen unexpectedly gets ripped away from you? Let's make it a little more personal than that when a friend that you've counted on decides to drop you as a friend, when someone that you trust abuses that trust or maybe even abuses you, when you find out that your spouse has cheated on you, 
or even just simply when your life's suddenly gone all wrong? How do we deal with betrayal, pain, and loss on the grandest scale, or even on the day-to-day simple scale? When somebody hurts us minorly or devastatingly, what do we do? In a very broad brush stroke, I want to say that even in talking about this, I'm going to be inadequate. Some of you have dealt with or are dealing with the sorts of abuse and pain and brokenness that no one sermon is going to do justice to. No one conversation can. And even as we're looking at things, it's going to look like we're diminishing your pain. And for you, I'm sorry, that's not the intention because there's a lot of weightiness to things that all of us have dealt with in this world. But our, our goal when we show up like this on a Sunday morning is to point ourselves to God, to let Him point us in His direction. In other words, we're going to look at God's Word and hopefully allow it to reorient us. So we're going to look at David's response to the betrayal he dealt with, how it points ahead to Jesus and what He does with betrayal and our betrayal, and how that paves a way for us moving forward when we're dealing with suffering and hurt and pain. So the story is part of the ongoing story of David. And David's life, if you haven't been reading along, it really does play out like a real-life Game of Thrones. There is rape and adultery and incest and murder and lies and plotting to steal thrones. I mean, it's not a PG book. And the author, as these chapters are playing out, the author of 1 and 2 Samuel wants us to see God chooses David even as David is imperfect. There are consequences to David's sin. We looked at David and Bathsheba and Uriah last week, and those consequences of his sin carry on for years and generations of brokenness in his family line. David's actions and often his inaction again and again reveal weaknesses and failures. In our story right here, we're dealing with his son Absalom. And throughout the story, we're not going to read every portion of it, what we get is David abdicating godly leadership at points and withholding fatherly love. But we also see in David somebody who deals with a very human story. He experiences a lot of defeat and even the betrayal of his own son and best friends. He knows that loss and that hurt and the sting of suffering. And his responses, when he's at his lowest point, show an awareness of his own sin and a deep trust in God, both of which are necessary to wade through the challenges of life. So the story really centers around Absalom. And for those who don't know much about him, Absalom was beautiful and he was talented. There's a whole description about his long, gorgeous hair that he cut off every year because it was so beautiful, and everyone thought he was the most wonderful man in the community. David thought so too, but he didn't really show it very well. Over the course of a series of events, Absalom gets exiled from Jerusalem because he is involved in a crime. Eventually, he gets pardoned and brought back, but David keeps him at arm's distance. Absalom takes things into his own hands. He's now basically the oldest son. He's the future king, and he wants the throne now. 
So what does he do? He gets himself a chariot and some, some soldiers, and he rides around Jerusalem on a chariot. He's the first person in Israel in recorded history to ride around on a chariot. The kings of Egypt and of the Philistines and of other lands rode around on chariots. Absalom now does this, wanting everyone to see that he looks like kind of a kingly guy, but he's only a son and a prince. Then he does a step further of treachery. He goes to the city gate every morning, and he stands there by the city gate doing things that in the ancient world wise patriarchal men did. They stood by the city gate and administered justice to those who came with disputes. And what he would do is he would intercept people on their way to go see King David, and he would say, tell me your name. I actually care about you. And when they went to bow down to him, he would grab them and and not let them bow all the way down. He would give them a kiss, meaning, we are brothers. I'm not greater than you. Tell me your, your problem. And he would always acknowledge the depth of their problem and their pain. He would say, you know, if only, if only there was a king who would listen to your, your problems, then you'd have justice, if only there was a king. Oh, go ahead on in, but you're not going to get any justice there. He was usurping the power of his father, David. David was king, but David was also his dad. And he was dealing treacherously, betraying that trust. For four years he did this until he had won the hearts of all of Israel. In one final act, he gathers men to Hebron, which was the city where David himself had been anointed king. He gathers all these chief officials, and he declares himself king. And all Israel celebrates. This is a king that we want. Beautiful Absalom the one who listens to all of our problems. Meanwhile, David is completely blindsided. And I don't know if you've dealt with something like that before, where maybe something has been going on for years and you had no idea. And all of a sudden, you're just blindsided. That gut-wrenching feeling of, my, my own son? You didn't take over thrones without somebody dying. My own son is taking the throne, and that means I'm going to be hunted. My own son, I raised him. David gathers all of his people that are still with him, and they flee, trying to escape. But as they flee, David is now changed one more time, and he begins to respond rightly once he loses everything. It's unfortunate that that's somehow what it takes for us to begin to respond rightly, although often we don't. But David does here. As they're heading out, we read in verse 30 of chapter 15, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. David walks out of Jerusalem not like a king but like a slave, barefoot, covering his head in shame and weeping. He's grieving the loss of his throne and his kingdom. He's grieving the broken relationship with his son. And I think even more so, we're meant to see that he's grieving his own sin and the sinful consequences that have fallen. He sees in what his son is doing the ramifications of a path that he began with Bathsheba and Uriah 10, 12 years before. 
that he had taken things in his own hands, gotten what he wanted the way he wanted, and now his son was doing the same thing. And he grieved and wept over his own sin and his son's sin and the brokenness that all of them were experiencing in the midst of the throne being taken from him. He heads out weeping, but he also heads out trusting God. At one point, as they're heading out of Jerusalem, David trying to escape, the priests come with the Ark of the Covenant, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're carrying this thing on their shoulders saying, David, wherever you go, we're going to take the Ark with you. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was the representation of God's physical presence with Israel. Wherever that Ark was, Yahweh was present. So for David to go out with that Ark would have been to take God with him. He could have gone anywhere in Israel and said, oh, sure, Absalom has the throne, but I got God. With God on my side, who can defeat me? Do you want to go worship and serve and and follow Absalom, or do you want God? He could have used God, if you would, for his own ends, but he chooses not to. Instead, he trusts God. He says in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 15, which we didn't read, no, no, carry the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him, God, do to me what seems good to him. He trusts God with the outcome. I'm no longer going to manipulate the things of God for my ends. If God wants Absalom to be king and not me, let it be. What I desire is God's purposes for this nation and for my life. Absalom becomes king, and then he sends out to hunt for David. Absalom leads an army hunting for David. David has his own small army, and they engage in battle. David's men defeat Absalom's, but even more than that, Absalom is killed. One of these bizarre stories, if you haven't read it before, Absalom has this super long hair. He's riding on his mule under an oak tree that's sort of a lower oak tree with lots of branches. His hair gets caught in the oak tree. The mule keeps walking, and he's left hanging by his hair. Joab, the commander of David's army, sees him, finds out that he's there, and brings his men and kills Absalom. And at this point, at this point is when Everyone rejoices. The betrayer, Absalom, the one who treacherously for four years tried to convince all of Israel to follow him, is dead, which means the coup is over and David can return to the throne in Jerusalem. And David should be celebrating. But instead, as soon as he hears the news, he just quakes. His body writhes and he weeps. Absalom, my son, oh my son, oh my son. Absalom. He weeps for the death of his son and all the sin that he has done and his son has done that has brought it together. You know what you find as you read through the story of David? He weeps more than he retaliates. He weeps more than he retaliates. Saul was after him, and it was not fair but he doesn't take revenge when he has a chance. And at the end, when Saul is killed and basically he's going to become king, he doesn't celebrate. 
he weeps for the death of this mentor, this man of God. And in the end, when David returns to his throne, there's a couple of points when he returns to Jerusalem where he could do what all of his officials wanted him to do, which is execute everybody who was a part of the coup. David, you know the penalty for treason and betrayal, death. All these people have betrayed you, let's get rid of them. But David is no longer willing to take justice into his own hands. He actually has every legal right to kill anybody who has opposed him and who had been a part of Absalom's coup. But he doesn't. He absolves all of them and says, look, I'm king by the mercy and grace of God, not because I'm good. These people were bad, just like me. I'm going to offer them grace and mercy and let God be their judge, not me. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor and author, summed up the state of David in this whole episode. David was a man after God's own heart because he hated sin, especially his own, but loved to forgive it. He hated sin, but loved to forgive it. In all of this, all the actions that take place here, Jesus is paralleling and pointing to his greater son, David is pointing to his greater son, Jesus. Think about how this whole story plays out. So, I didn't go into it in depth, but David leaves Jerusalem going over the Mount of Olives, and he's weeping at his own sin and the betrayals that he's experienced. Not sure if he'll return, but trusting in the Lord to do with him as he pleases. A thousand years later, in the opposite direction, Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the shouts and cheers of all of the people, the crowd saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David. And it looks like he's celebrating, entering as king. But as he gets closer to the city, Luke records that Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and he, as he's riding down the Mount of Olives, begins to weep because he sees that Jerusalem does not recognize who he is, and they are going to betray him. He weeps for their sinfulness. He weeps that they cannot see that he is the way of salvation and of peace. And he weeps for the very people who are going to kill him at the end of the week. And then at the end of the week, Jesus repeats David's steps. He now goes out to the Mount of Olives on the night before he's crucified in anguish and in tears, he's praying, God, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but yours be done. He's betrayed by his best friends. You know, at that last supper, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and not one of them said, oh, well, it's obviously Judas. Have you seen the guy? You see, Judas was one of Jesus' closest friends, where he's sitting at that Last Supper indicates that he was one of his most trusted, closest friends. And nobody said, well, why does Judas get to sit right there? Everyone knew Judas got to sit right there. They were all surprised. What, him? He's one of your best friends, Jesus. He's not only part of the circle, he's part of the inner, inner circle. But Judas sells him. Peter denies him. All of his best friends abandon him.
And on that next day, he faces the penalty for other people's sin, for our rebellion against God. Know this. Jesus experienced the worst of human sins against him. Isaiah records 700 years beforehand that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One of the things that tells us if you are dealing with betrayal and hurt, if you've been dealt with very poorly, he gets it. He knows what it's like. He is not a distant, abstract idea. He is a person who has dealt with the worst things you can deal with. He understands. You are not alone. But what is Jesus' response to the very people who betrayed him, to his enemies, to the ones who crucified him unjustly? From the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The very people that he has the power to extinguish, he doesn't. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And it's the very same thing he says to us. In Romans 5.10 and Colossians 2.14, we read, While we were enemies of God, enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. We were enemies. God made us right by the death of his Son. How? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the gospel message. The gospel message is that we owe a debt to God for our sin, but when we pull out our wallet, it's empty. Yeah, I got nothing here, God. We owe a debt to God that we cannot pay back. We are bankrupt. But God cancels the debt by his death on the cross. He pays it in full. He says, hey, you owe a penalty you can't pay. You owe a debt you can't pay. I'll pay it. And not only that, but he also takes our wallet, if you would, and fills it up so that now the wallet is full. And he's like, Jesus died for your sins, paying the penalty you deserve, but the life that he lived is now going to be attributed to you. You are rich. God sees you as somebody who is as holy and perfect as his own son was. He no longer views you as somebody who owes a debt. It's been paid for. And he fills up your bank account to overflowing. You are sinful. He considers you holy. You betray. He looks at you as if you are his son. It's the gift of the gospel and what God has done in Jesus Christ. Kevin DeYoung, once again, he said, God doesn't just welcome his enemies. He dies in their stead. This gospel message is the power for us to do to our enemies as Christ has done for us. So how do we respond when somebody close to us, like it was for David, a son becomes an enemy? I think the first thing we do following David, following Jesus, is we weep. We weep over sin. The starting point for how to deal with anything like this is to orient ourselves right towards ourselves, which is weeping. Now look, there is a place when you have dealt with betrayal and pain and suffering to just grieve. You just need to grieve the loss. 
And that may take months or years of just weeping over what you had in a friendship or a marriage or a son or daughter when that relationship is betrayed and broken. You might just need to grieve and weep. But mixed in with that needs to be weeping over sin. And the first place is to weep over my own sin. Sometimes that's acknowledging the complicity in brokenness. David had to do this because he saw his pattern with Bathsheba and Uriah was the very one his own son was carrying out. Of course he should expect his son to betray him, to take things in his own hands. It's what he had done. But it's also acknowledging, I'm no different than my enemy. In weeping for our sin, we acknowledge, I am no different. I would do the same thing in a different circumstance, or I have done it. It's also to weep over our betrayer, our enemy's sin. Not blaming them, although there's often blame, but heartbreak that they're so broken. And I think David... David's heart breaks for Absalom's sinful pattern here. He's moved with compassion because he sees the destruction that Absalom is causing himself. And it's weeping over the brokenness of this world. This is a fallen world, and it creates in us a longing for heaven. And this is, I, I feel like, a little bit of the harder part in it is I... I find that if I've been wronged in some way, I can grieve the loss and I can, I can recognize you as a sinner, and that's where I stop. I don't want to take it to that next step of weeping over my own sin, but it's, it's essential because if I can't see my own sin, I will always think I am better than those who have hurt me, and I will never be able to let go of it. The first thing is to weep over our sin. The second is to trust in God. Trust God is sovereign. He is the Savior. He is judge. And do what I think David does here, which is desire God's glory more than my own. I don't know about you, but I can always see how my successes in life could lead to God's glory. And yet God, again and again, seems to use suffering, failure, loss, even death. So I need to trust God with outcomes even when I can't see a way forward. Come on, God, wouldn't it be a whole lot better if, if I got the job? Don't you see how you could use that? If I got the girl, if I made it into that college... I mean, if we win the game, I could use that for your glory. It's much harder to be willing to let God use our losses and our pains for His glory. But if I'm going to desire God's glory more than my own, what does that look like? Well, it looks like aligning your values, your priorities, your aims in life with God. So you actually need to know God. And it's also holding open-handed all of your roles and your success and anything that you have a hand in. So as an example, those of you who have come to CCV and had a conversation with me, I've, I've, I've said things along these lines. Hey, I don't care where you go. I want you to find the right church for you. And on one level, I mean that. 
You see, I want people to come to faith in Christ. I really do. I want people to grow in their faith in Christ, and I want to see the kingdom of God spread, which means if you're going to be served better or reached by another church, I want you to be there. But not really. (laughs) And when you leave, I will maybe let you go freely because, hey, maybe you need to go there for God's purposes. But really, God, that's not a great idea. And I find a wrestling there that I think you will find, too, when you're trying to seek God's glory more than your own. Do you desire your kids, for instance, to know God and be made into the image of Christ more than you desire their success and happiness? Do you desire them to know God and be made into His image more than their success and happiness? In your own life, which has shaped you more into the image of God? Your successes or your failures? This is only possible when you enter into faith in Christ and His Spirit dwells in you. Without the Spirit changing your heart and your desires, you're just going to try really hard when you leave here to be be a better person, forgive people more, trust God more, You actually need the Spirit of God. You need new life inside of you. And when you seek God and His Spirit dwells in you by faith, your desires for God become greater than your desires for your own kingdom. Weep for your sin, trust in God, so that, third, you can forgive, which is the right orientation to an enemy. When it comes down to it, we have to be able to weep for our sin and trust in God. And that weep for sin is recognizing that we're no different, no different than even the worst offender. David looked at Absalom, and he saw his own sin. It's easier to be ruthless and vengeful when you're perfect. I'd never do that. I can't believe she did. But to the extent that you see your own sin and sinful potential, to the extent that you see your own sin and sinful potential, you'll have the ability to forgive and even love an enemy. But to get there, you ultimately have to believe that your salvation, your forgiveness, and God's love for you is by grace. Our culture, to borrow from another minister's sermon, is that your performance determines the verdict Your performance determines the verdict. What you deserve, the verdict, is based on your performance in life. And let's think about it. If you're a fairly successful person, fairly good morally compared to most others, or you're just a really responsible person, you have a job and you keep it, you keep your house nice and tidy, you pay your bills, you do all those right sorts of things. Nice and responsible person, fairly successful, fairly good, If that's how you view yourself and you think the verdict is based on your performance, how will you view someone who hurts or ruins your life? How much generosity will you offer them? The gospel is the opposite. The verdict is based on Christ's performance on the cross and not on yours. The verdict is already in, forgiven, set free, reconciled. 
The verdict is yours by grace, not performance. By grace is the only power to treat others not as you think they deserve. Miroslav Volf, a theologian, wrote, If on the bottom line of our lives lies the principle that we should get what we deserve, whether good or ill, forgiveness will sit uncomfortably with us. To forgive is to give people more than they're due. It's to release them from the debt they have incurred, and that's bound to mess up the books. Forgiveness is costly. You've heard us talk about this. If you forgive, somebody pays. If a kid throws a a ball through your window, you have one of two options. You can either make him pay to replace the window, in which case he pays, or his family does, or you can forgive him. Hey, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. But then you have to pay. Either you have to pay to replace the window, or you're going to pay because you now have a broken window where the cold air in the winter gets in and the hot in the summer. You're going to pay, or they're going to pay. There's no forgiveness without paying. But it's much easier to forgive a debt, a penalty against you, if you are incredibly rich. Can you imagine Bill Gates? He's worth like, I think, $81 billion, give or take a few. If he's riding around in D.C. in his private limousine and it breaks down, but he needs to get to to a special meeting at the White House at Capitol Hill, so he has to hop in a taxi cab. He hops in a taxi cab, and there's Bill Gates riding along. He gets out of the taxi cab, has his meeting, and later on is reaching down into his pocket where he has his wallet and he has his phone, and he also had a few dollar bills in there. He had two 20s, he remembers. There was $40 in his pocket besides his wallet, but the $40 isn't there anymore. And he thinks, I know what happened. When I was riding in that taxi cab, I bet the $40 fell out. Now, at that point, does Bill Gates call the taxi company? Does he hunt down the taxi driver? Does he say, pay up, buddy? What'd you do with my $40 sitting on that back seat? If you've got $81.7 billion in your bank account, $40 is easy to let go of. But if every dollar is the basis of your value and worth, you will shake every person down who takes from you. Only if you are able to see how deeply you are loved and forgiven, how wide and high and deep is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, so wide and deep that all eternity will not be enough for you to plumb the depths of God's love for you. Only then can you have the full bank account to forgive the $40 debts, let alone the thousands of dollar debts? David's son, Absalom, had become his enemy, which is why he wept for him, because he loved him. We were God's enemies who have become God's sons because he loved and died for us and has forgiven us our offenses. To the degree that this is our understanding of ourselves, we'll be able to love our enemies and treat them like beloved sons and daughters. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe that you paid it all, all the debt that we owe in your death on the cross. 
help us to acknowledge the depth of our sin and the even greater depth of your grace and love. And by the power of your Spirit, help us to see our sin and weep and the brokenness of this world and weep and offer forgiveness and grace that has been so freely and richly offered to us. In Jesus' name, amen.